Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You'll need a Bible to follow along. So that's why these guys have come to the front. They're going to make their way to the back. They have Bibles. If you need one, get their attention. And they'll get one of those Bibles to you, marked for you at 1 Thessalonians 4. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everyone to have own a copy of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 4. And this morning we continue our look at a passage begun last week, but which we did not finish. I had a lot to say last week about the issue addressed in this passage, which is given in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 3 says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And then you notice the colon there. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, set apart, made holy, is what that's saying. Colon, here's how that happens. That you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, if you were not here for last week's message, you can hear it and all of our messages at our website, cbctrenton.com. So we're taking two weeks on the topic of avoiding sexual immorality. Now, why devote so much time to that issue? Well, there are at least three reasons. One, it's what this passage is about. Some have said that it's the most detailed passage in the Bible on the subject of sex and the immorality that often accompanies it. Second, it's an important subject throughout Scripture. In fact, sexual sin leads the sin lists in several passages in the Bible. In cataloging sins which Christians are to flee from, it typically lists sexual sins first. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, it begins a section of teaching on the issue of sanctification with this priority. It says, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And elsewhere, when the Bible lists the works of the flesh that have to be avoided, it starts with this. It says the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And then likewise, in Colossians chapter 3, we're told to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, colon, starting with again, sexual immorality, impurity, lust. Sexual purity was regarded by the apostles, the first followers of Jesus, as so integral to Christian holiness that the very first council of the church, the Jerusalem council recorded in Acts chapter 15 in your Bible, it emphasized that converts to Christ must, here's what the Bible says, abstain from food polluted by idols from sexual immorality. So it's prominent in the passage at hand. It's specified in numerous places elsewhere in Scripture. And another reason we're taking two messages to look at this issue is that it's a pervasive problem in our society. America is a different place since the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And we're living with the consequences of that. My father died in 1973 when I was 11. And the world, as he knew it then, no longer exists. Though at the time he passed away, our society was involved in a massive upheaval. It was still radically different than the one we live in today. I mean, just consider that in the 1950s, 
Elvis Presley would only be shown on television from the waist up. That in many movies, even a kiss was considered scandalous and sex scenes were virtually non-existent. When I was a kid in the 70s, some of you will remember this, the TV went off at night, like they signed off for the night. Remember that? You know, at 1 or 2 a.m. they played the national anthem and then that was it. And then we'll come on again at you know 6 or 7 a.m. and then do it, all, do it all over again. And not only did they sign off, there were only four stations to choose from anyway. But our society was changing then and has now been completely transformed in terms of sexual attitudes and the availability of sexual content. Marriage is now completely optional. And marriage then, if it's done at all, only after you've had a chance to try before you buy by living together. Something our grandparents would have called shacking up. So there's ample reason to take at least two messages to address this very important topic, this topic that's addressed in 1 Thessalonians, a book which was written to a healthy church, a book that describes in the title of this series through 1 Thessalonians what God looks for in a church. But it was a church that was, nevertheless, like our church and any church, in danger of being desensitized to the sensuality of the surrounding culture. And so today we're going to continue that theme Let's pray and ask God to help us as we do. Father, we're thankful to you that we're here. Because you are the one who, in your sovereign providence, guides all the circumstances of our lives, and you've made it possible for us to be here. And some of us are able to come every week or most weeks. And some have come here for the first time today. But whatever the case, it is you who's made it possible. And this is a divine appointment. That you have given us to encounter you in your word, in your standards for us. And so, Lord, help us to see it as that opportunity, as we open your word to learn from it, to make application of it in our lives so that we can bring glory to you, the purpose for which you have made us and are remaking us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Every week for our message, we have an outline of the message inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out so that you can follow along. And you see the top portion is kind of grayed out because that's what we covered last week. We saw that Christian living is imperative. And then we started looking at the fact that Christian living requires holiness. That holiness is God's will. It requires obedience. But now we pick up from there. And I say in your outline, holiness requires pure actions. Holiness requires pure actions. Verse 4, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Now, there are two ways to understand the phrase translated control your own body because in Greek, and most of you know that your New Testament was originally written in Greek, in Greek, it can mean that, control your own body, but it can also mean take your own wife, take to yourself your own wife. And it was written as taking a wife rather than taking a husband because men were the ones who most often initiated sexual immorality on that day. Women had no such liberties. And so one solution was for men to be devoted to their wives. Now, the NIV, New International Version, which is what most of you have in front of you, it's the Bibles that the guys were distributing, it and other translations are probably right to translate it as controlling your own body. But the idea of marrying 
to protect against sexual immorality is in fact taught in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians as well as 1 Thessalonians, says this, Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. But now in chapter 4 and verse 4, we're being told to control our own bodies, men and women. And we're being told to do that because, as humans, we actually have, just by virtue of being human, quite apart now from being Christians, but just from being human, we can do this. Self-control is possible. Contrary to the way it looks in society, it's possible because we are humans, made in the image of God, and we are not animals, simply reacting to stimuli. We're responsible then for our impulses, Because the word responsibility can be thought of this way. Response ability. That is, you have the ability to respond. You have the ability to respond appropriately as humans. But in addition to that as Christians, we have the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. Many of you are familiar with the famous fruit of the Spirit that's given in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It gives nine fruits of the Spirit. But among those is the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So this idea of the ability to respond and restrain, and then among Christians having the Holy Spirit, one of the fruits of which is self-control, is contrary to the common attitude that says it's all just natural urges, and so boys will be boys and girls just want to have fun. That attitude is not original to today. It goes back at least 2,000 years as it was voiced by those in the city of Corinth to which two letters in your Bible were written, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And the Corinthians would say this. Paul, who wrote to them, said, You say, Corinthians, you say this, Food for the stomach and the stomach for food And God will destroy them both. Now, notice that's in quotation marks because it was something that the Corinthians would say in order to justify their sexual immorality. It was their excuse for engaging in sexual immorality. They're saying, in effect, we have sexual needs just as we have nutritional needs. And what we do with our bodies is apparently not important because it will be destroyed and only the spirit will survive. In response to that, the Bible says a few chapters later in what's called the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that the body does indeed matter and it will indeed be raised. So the Corinthians were wrong in their approach that said it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. It's only the spirit that matters. And further, sexual sin has a profound negative effect on the body. Again, in 1 Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. Flee. Get away from it. Get away from it like, if you remember the story of Joseph in the first part of your Bible, and Potiphar's wife came to tempt him into sexual sin. But here's a man who knew ahead of time what he was going to do if that temptation confronted him. And so he didn't have to think about it. He immediately left. He, he fled. Flee. Sexual immorality. Get away from it. But then it says this, whoever sins sexually... Sins against his own body. Has a profound effect. One commentator says, 
I believe it's saying that although sexual sin is not necessarily the worst sin, it's the most unique in its character. It rises from within the body built on personal gratification. It drives like no other impulse and when fulfilled affects the body like no other sin. It has a way of internally destroying a person that no other sin has. Because sexual intimacy is the deepest uniting of two persons, its misuse corrupts on the deepest human level. That's not psychological analysis, but a divinely revealed fact. Sexual immorality is far more destructive than alcohol, more destructive than drugs, more destructive than crime. John MacArthur says some 16 years ago, or excuse me, some years ago, a 16-year-old girl came to my office in complete despair. She had committed so many sex sins that she felt utterly worthless. She had not looked in the mirror for months because she could not stand to look at herself And to me, he says, she looked nearer 40 than 16. She was on the verge of suicide, not wanting to live another day. I had a special joy in leading her to Jesus Christ and seeing the transformation he made in her life. And she said, for the first time in years, I feel clean. And many of the Corinthians needed that cleaning again. And certainly many Americans need that cleaning. And perhaps many Christians in this room need that cleaning again as well. So verse 4 says, we need to learn to control our bodies and their impulses. Now the word learn is from the Greek word oida, which carries the idea of having the knowledge or skill necessary to accomplish a desired goal. Every Christian needs to know himself well so as to understand his own weaknesses and evil propensities and so then know how to be under control. Although this is a fruit of the Spirit, as we saw, and therefore self-control is possible for every Christian, it does not happen automatically. So we have to learn and actively engage in avoiding sexual immorality. We need to actively do things that avoid temptations. So things like stay away from places that bring to mind things you've done in the past and they're likely to tempt you to do so again. If someone's going to gain victory over alcohol, for example, they need to stay away from the places they used to go where it flowed freely. And likewise, for sexual temptation, it may well mean not watching or listening to things that bring up the past for you and that cause your mind to go in ungodly directions. It may mean... Taking action like establishing an accountability partner to keep you from doing those things. There are, in our day, there are software programs that will aid you in doing that. One of those that I'm familiar with, in fact, I've had people ask me to be partners with them in this, is called Covenant Eyes. You see on the screen the the website. I don't get any money from Covenant Eyes, so I'm not hawking it for that. It's just a good program for you to use to filter the Internet. And also you can establish an accountability partner who gets an email once a week or whatever frequency you establish that they see a report of all the places you've been on the Internet. And if you uninstall the program, they get an email saying that. So-and-so uninstalled the program. You might want to check with, check with them. So it's accountability software. It may be doing what I've suggested in counseling many times over the year. And that is to treat your mind as a remote control that changes the channel when an inappropriate or sinful image appears in your mind. 
So just like when you have the TV on and a commercial comes on that you shouldn't be watching, you should have then a preset channel to go to so that you can then come back later to whatever it was you were watching. This can happen while you're watching sports and then the commercials come on and you should immediately change the channel and then come back later. And likewise, you can do that with your mind. And I've suggested that people do that. When an image or thought or temptation comes, have a preset place to go in your mind. That preset place might be a passage of scripture. It might be thoughts about the character of Christ, thoughts about your family, any number of things. But the time to decide to do that is before the temptation, before the event, not during, as it's often too late at that point. We live in a day, friends, where, yes, television images, yes, the Internet, yes, billboards, and then songs, music. They're filled with sexual innuendo. And back in the day, that used to be the extent of it. They were filled with sexual innuendo. But those were kind of the good old days when it was just sexual innuendo. Today, they just say it straight out. And it's often very demeaning and awful stuff. Now, I admit to being happily ignorant of most of what's going on in music today. But I... uh, have for about the last year and a half been going to a small a gym near our house to get on their treadmill. And at the time I go there, there's almost never anybody there. So I'm able to do my thing and then, and then leave. Sometimes there's one person there. But there was a period of time for about a month or two last year where when I went in, there were like four young ladies in this small gym. And they had gotten there before I did. And they have a boom box and they're just blaring some music. So I'm on the treadmill, and they're doing whatever they're doing, and the music's going, and I'm hearing this music, and I can't believe the words I'm hearing. And how awful and demeaning. And it's demeaning toward women, and these young girls are playing it. We need to remember, friends, that sin is distortion of what God has made as good. What sin does is it distorts what was actually good to begin with, but it's distorted in that it's used in the wrong ways and for the wrong purposes. So, for example, greed is a distortion of matter, material. God gave us the material world to use and to enjoy, but greed distorts that use in the way it's used and for the purposes that it's used. Gossip and slander are distortions of our God-given ability to communicate. Pride is a distortion of our relationship with God because it breaks down the creator-creature distinction, in effect making us like God. Immoral sex is a distortion of something that God gave as a gift to be enjoyed for the mutual benefit of both spouses. The truth is, sex like marriage was God's idea, but sin has distorted both. And because sin has so distorted it, and we see it in our world, it's very easy then for us to back away from the very biblical truth that sex done and pursued in the way that God gave it as his gift, in fact, is a very good thing. God's good purpose for sex within marriage, the only holy sex that there is, is within marriage, one man to one woman. It remains for the pleasure of each spouse, despite the distortions of our world. And we're taught this again in 1 Corinthians. 
says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And then it says, do not deprive each other. So contrary to what over the centuries some misguided Christians have taught, sex is not only for procreation, but God gave sex as a good gift within the bonds of marriage, not only for procreation, but for pleasure as well. And to fail to engage in that within marital bonds is to deprive one spouse. Sex is then good within marriage and therefore can be engaged in honorably within it. And friends, we should teach our children that sex is a good gift from God, that when pursued within the bonds of marriage is a beautiful thing, lest they think it dirty and sinful. Hear this. If they do not hear about sex from a Christian perspective, they will most definitely hear about it from a non-Christian perspective. And so we must teach our children in our homes. Now, again, I offer you a way to do that. Covenant Eyes has another website called Protect Young Eyes. So those of you that have children, I encourage you to go there. They have free downloadable resources giving you uh, helps on how to talk to your children. So Christian living requires holiness, and holiness requires pure actions. And I say in your outline, it also requires pure desires. Verse 4 says, We engage sex in a holy and honorable way. And then verse 5 says, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Passion means uncontrollable desires, compelling feelings, overpowering urges. Lust refers to an out-of-control craving, usually for that which is unrighteous or illegitimate. And this is characteristic, the passage says, of those who do not know God suggesting that it need not be characteristic of those who do. That is, Christians are not enslaved to the passions that unbelievers are. Christians are tempted and sometimes succumb, but they are not enslaved by them. Romans chapter 6 and verse 11 says, Sin shall no longer be your, the Christian's, master. The difference in Christian and non-Christian behavior, and make no mistake, friends, there must be a difference between Christian and non-Christian behavior. The difference starts at the level of desire and of thought. It doesn't start with what we do. It starts with what we want and then how we think about what we want and how we talk about what we want and then gives rise to what we actually act upon. The progression of an action is that it's preceded by desires that lead to thoughts, that lead to words, and then to the actions. And so here is that progression. Desires, thoughts, words, and actions. Now, we most often focus on the actions. And we try to clean up the actions. It's all good. Establish the accountability partner. Don't go to the places you used to go. Don't go to those websites. Don't watch that stuff that tempts tempts you. That's all good. It's all wise. But if you only deal with the actions... And you don't get to literally the heart of the matter, the desires. Then you may get away from that particular action only to channel ungodly desires into something else. That's why you often find addicts cleaning up their act with one addiction and going to another one. Because the illicit desires are still there. You see, friends, no one gets up one day and just commits sexual sin. 
It's the culmination of many quicker and seemingly harmless desires and thoughts. So how do I get these new actions that only come from new desires? Well, in the Christian life, the objective is not simply to stop sinful behaviors, sinful actions. It's to replace it with good behavior. And if you just find ways to stop, though, what you're doing, it will most often be a temporary fix unless it's rooted in changed desires. And so I have to replace those desires with other desires. Instead of feasting my mind on the messages from the world, I feast my mind on messages from God, godly messages. I replace that with something else and so cultivate different root desires. So holiness requires pure actions. It requires pure desires. And I say in your outline, it requires brotherly love. Verse 6. In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. And I should have said in the outline, it requires brotherly and sisterly love. In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage. So in this matter of the way we behave and think and talk about sexual matters, we should not wrong or take advantage of anyone. Now, in our licentious society, it defines sex as an exclusively private matter, but the truth is many people are deeply affected by each sexual sin. A woman who steals a husband breaks up a marriage and a family. A man who seduces a single woman robs her future husband her future husband, of the purity that she ought to offer him. A middle-aged man or teenager who plugs his heart into pornographic images diminishes his capacity to love real people. Did you hear that? Love real people. These are fake people on the screen. That's one of the attractions because it's sex without the hard work of relationship. And the person who plugs into that diminishes their ability to love real, actual people. Sexual sin inevitably involves spouses, parents, children, siblings, friends, and fellow Christians. Because sexuality is a covenantal and societal matter, the Bible commands that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Now, I said that the root of our actions is our desires, and the root desires underlying sinful sexual activity are all this, friends. They're all self-centered desires. Rather than loving people and serving them, sinful sex of whatever variety, whether pornography, fornication, adultery, it uses people for our own benefit. Consider this, that image on the screen, that person of whom a picture was taken and then modified, that image on the screen is someone's daughter and perhaps someone's wife or mother. And most important of all, that person is made in the image of God And is not to be an object to be used. Love for God will treat what he loves with the respect it or them and they deserve. You cannot get involved in sexual sin if you love people, including your own family, as you ought. Have you ever considered that? When you get involved, anyone gets involved in sexual sin... It's a self-centered sin. It's about gratification of myself. And it is not thinking about the other person as anything other than an object to obtain that gratification. 
You can't do that if you love people the way you ought. You can't do that if you love what God loves and treats it and them with the respect that they deserve. So one protection against sexual sin is practicing love for people regularly in the way you think about and in the way you behave toward them. In the words of Scripture, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. You show me a person who's immersed in sexual sin, and I will show you a self-centered person. Holiness is God's will, and it requires obedience, pure actions, pure desires, brotherly and sisterly love, and lastly in your outline. Holiness is the basis for judgment. Verse 6, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. Now that judgment may come in this life, it may come in the next, it may come in both. For example, the result of sexual sin could be severely, a severely damaged marriage, accompanied by loss of family love and respect. The sin could lead to divorce. God may chasten you by allowing you to be afflicted with venereal disease or some other physical problem. Or the sin could result in the absence of blessing, the presence of a greater than average number of trials and troubles, or even an untimely death. These are all possible consequences in this life. But whether any or all of those happen, sexual sin by a believer will certainly result to some degree in the loss of eternal reward at the judgment seat of Christ before which we must all give an account, the Bible says. Now, why would God mete out such judgment? Well, verse 7 says it's because such a life is completely incompatible with God's purpose for us. Verse 7. God will judge... All such sin, why? Verse 7, for, that is because, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Remember, friends, God saved us to be his, to be uniquely his, to be different, to show a better lifestyle to the world by reflecting his character in our thoughts and words and actions, to show that he is enough And that he satisfies so deeply that we do not need to engage in the fallen practices of the world because we delight in God and he is more than enough for us. That's what God has called us to be and to display. And giving ourselves to sexual sin fails that most basic purpose for which God has chosen us, for which Christ died for us, and for which the Holy Spirit is at work in us. And God will have none of it. And God will do what's necessary To vindicate his reputation. So this matter is extremely serious. You can see from God's word. Therefore, verse 8. Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. But friends, it ends with that good news. God has given you, if you are his child, his Holy Spirit. This can be done in the strength of Almighty God, God the Holy Spirit, who has a special relationship with the children of God. We've all read over the last several years of the scandal in the Roman Catholic Church 
that's international in scope and it's stunning in its depth. How could so many priests be caught up in such sin? I believe the answer lies in the legalistic approach that's taken toward a relationship with God. You see, in a works-oriented kind of church, a works-oriented religion, it depends on you and what you do. But friends, you absolutely need the power of the Spirit to live a holy life. You cannot do it just by trying harder to keep the rules. But there's good news. If you're a believer, you have the restraining power of the Holy Spirit and He will help you if you but ask in sincere repentance. If you're an unbeliever today, you came into this room, you don't know what it is to have a relationship with God. Christ can free you from your sins. If you come to Him, He will rescue you, save you, deliver you, and give you the Holy Spirit and begin to mold you into His image. So I ask you to bow with me as we pray. I don't know everyone here well, as our heads are bowed. I certainly don't know everyone's circumstances. But knowing what I do know about the pervasiveness of sexual sin, it would not surprise me if we have some who are involved in adultery or fornication or who are struggling with the Internet, TV, with the material they read. It may be that we have some in this room who came here without knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer in just a moment. And as we do, there are two kinds of prayers, one from the Christian and one from the non-Christian. For my Christian brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us, as you know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the prayer of your heart. Oh, Lord, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge what your word says about how heinous and dangerous and deep-seated this is. I recognize how weak that I am. I ask you, Lord, to help me as only you can. I want to honor you in the way I think, in the way I talk, in the way I act. Forgive me. And then there's this other prayer from those who don't know the Lord. You can come to know the Lord right now for the asking. You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. That he is your savior, he died on the cross for your sin, he is your Lord, he's your master, he made you. And so from your heart to God, you acknowledge that you're a sinner. That sin has manifested itself in your life in many ways, as it has in all of ours. Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need you as the savior. I believe you died for my sin. I want to follow you, you're my Lord and my master. I'm going to go your way. No longer my way. I ask you, Lord, to take my life and to clean it up to into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the candor of your word. Thank you, Lord, that because it was written, completed 2,000 years ago by the one ultimate author our our omniscient God who knows all things, that it's as relevant today as it was then. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. And thank you for working in our hearts. Oh, Lord, may these changes take root so that this afternoon, this week, and the months and years ahead, we may live for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Your take-home truth on your outline is believers must live holy lives that avoid all forms of impurity, Let's stand together for our closing song.